Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I sound like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. If the following conversation with Dom Flemons doesn't inspire you, then I don't know what will. This guy is so talented and so ambitious in the good way, not in the creepy way, but in the way where he's just, he calls it during our conversation, he refers to the search and how sometimes he gets overwhelmed by it. And I think that's so cool. I think he is someone to look up to. I certainly do. He plays guitar, banjo, bones, jug, harmonica, drums. He sings like an angel. He writes brilliant songs. He writes brilliant prose. He's a historian and a musicologist. He's a dad now. He He's a world traveler. He was a part of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which is how I very first met him when the Old 97s shared a festival stage with them. And then years later, I had a long night after a Johnny Cash tribute. We talk about it during the conversation you're about to hear. But that night went late into the night. Shooter Jennings and Dom and I were the last ones standing in a fancy hotel room that Shooter was staying in. And by the end of the night, Shooter and I just, we just begged Dom to keep playing music for us. Because it's, he's just so good. It's so inspiring to hear him play music, but to hear him talk as well. So I I really look forward to hearing what you guys think of this. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation because Dom is just, he's one of a kind. So without further ado, welcome to Wheels Off, Dom Clements. Hey, well, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Rhett. Thank you for having me. Boy, this is so cool. You know, I've, I've, I haven't seen you in a few years, and I've been following you and you know reading the stuff you've written and listening to music you've made, but I haven't gotten to hang out with you. And of course, it would take a pandemic and a an Ethernet cable to bring us back together. <laughs> yeah, it's been sort of an odd shift in the the world of communication. I mean, like, I've, it's been interesting as well. You know, I I th- actually think about you a lot. I've been following your work as well as after our time that we had that uh, wonderful time that we uh, met over at the um, Austin city limits, Johnny cash tribute. And um, yeah, it's been great. And I'm glad that we actually get a chance to get together again. The technology is sort of a interesting combination of it's amazing that we're connecting, but at the same time, it's so odd that this is our only choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, well, so it's I- strange, you know, um, so I know that this right now, this question is particularly fraught because if your situation is anything like mine, it's kind of it feels hard to work on creative projects. But um, 
what creative project are you working on at the moment and how does it light you up? Well, you know, recently I've been trying to bring all the material that I've recorded over the past several years into one place. And one of the ways this year I decided to do that was to uh, reissue my album Prospect Hill, which I recorded back in 2014. And so after Prospect Hill, I did an EP in 2015 called What Got Over, which was like the outtakes and some of the interesting um, uh while Prospect 2 was a lot of songs I had written and more uh, aligned with what I was performing live, I had a lot of uh, material that was sort of, um, I guess they were experimentations and sort of uh, divergences into fife and drum music and sort of the folk roots of hip-hop, at least as I was trying to experiment. I didn't get a chance to go through it all the way. I did a couple of tracks on the album, like there's one called Grotto Beat and another one called Georgia Drum Beat. But I went back in the studio with the engineer and I took some of the other beats and I created what got over with that. So then this year I talked with the engineer. Um, my album had been on Music Maker Relief Foundation and and I'd wanted to just reissue both albums together. So I hooked up with Omnivore Recordings and they just helped me repackage it. And they asked if I had any material that I hadn't released before. So I reached out to Jason Richmond, the engineer, and he found me 12 other instrumental cuts that were just beautiful flavors of uh, the, the whole session um, and just in the various forms of how I was experimenting. So I repackaged it all together. So got to do new liner notes, new packaging, remastered the whole thing. And, and it's like a director's cut of the album because I, at the time I wasn't sure if I wanted to make it more of a pop type of Americana record if I wanted to make it more of a traditional type of record and so it's sort of both of those ideas combined into one so that's been the main thing I've been doing but I've been doing a lot of scholarship stuff and uh, academic uh, research and stuff too that's kind of always happening <laughs> I love that I love how you use your Instagram feed to share stuff that like I had no idea existed and it's so cool is that I mean so do you think you'll wind up putting books together with the scholarship you're doing Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny with Instagram and uh, social media. One of the things I noticed right off the bat was that it was such a powerful tool for communication. And actually, all of the sharing started because I I had the problem that a lot of us have where when you see something on the feed, you say, okay, I'm going to look at that later. And then it disappears forever. And you can't find it until it pops up again. And so for me, the sharing started when I was just trying to make bookmarks for myself to read an article later or whatnot. And also it was kind of a public sharing as well, because, you know, sometimes uh, some of the stuff that I get into it would be of interest to other people or some of the articles that I find that are definitive, definitive profiles on artists that I I may already know about and may know other people might not know about. I, I share that as well just for it started out as just bookmarkers, but then it just became a thing. Now, over time, I just still see there's so much scholarship and there's so many uh, articles being published on folk music. And then, of course, I have my personal collection of scholarship, which I'm at some point I'm going to put together in, I don't know, in a memoir or I, I don't know. An autobiography or memoir sounds great to me, but also there are these long divergences into philosophical musical development that I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to write it down, but that, that's something in my mind. It's definitely, it's definitely been uh, in the forefront of my mind during this time where it, um, this year is literally the 15th year I've been a professional musician. Uh, and so I realized it was a great, uh, 
sort of milestone for me uh, personally. So it's allowed me to really start thinking and, and reassessing a lot of my journey thus far and then the journey that's uh, still to come. I'm only 37, so I, I you know, I hopefully I got many years to go. You know, that's what I'd like. Lucky dog. Um, <laughs> so I think about, I remember that night after the Johnny Cash tribute and Shooter Jennings and you and I were sitting around late into the evening and I think Shooter and I played a couple of songs and we we're passing the guitar around. And finally, we just begged you. I don't know if this is how you remember it, but we just begged you to please just keep playing because the way that you approach music is such an incredible combination of um, ability and, you know, like the, the, the thousands of hours of practice that have made you an instrumentalist. But also, you're such a musicologist. And I, and I always came from a school where if I know too much about a thing, it ruins the mystery of it. So I don't never want to know too much. I feel like for you, it's the opposite. You, is, am I, is this right? Like, do you always want to know more and more? And do you feel like it makes you a better musician? I think so, but I'm wondering how you take it. Well, I appreciate that, Red. You know, I, uh, well, it, it, in my mind, I've kind of, uh, I've been able to just uh, let it settle in my mind that there's always more to learn. And I've just, I've just always been okay with the idea of being able to learn more, whether I actually actively use the musical ideas or not. I just love inspiration by music. So I'm always looking for something new anyway. And for me, it's always the love of the music and then finding out more about the music as a result of the love of the music. So if I'm drawn to a certain record, then I'm drawn to, you know, whatever it might be. I don't know. I, I could think of any song. I, I don't know. Maybe when I, First started listening to Bob Dylan, I, I heard a beautiful song called Abandoned Love on uh, the album Biograph, and it was an outtake from the album Desire, which is one of my favorite Dylan records. Very eclectic sound, very different sounding than many Dylan records. But this outtake, with how it was put together, it, was, it, it really just gave me a different perspective. And so for me, that just kind of fueled the fire for the... Um, you know, for the album Desire, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm already inspired, you know. You know, So I, I I was just already drawn into the album, and so I was drawn deeper into it and learned more about the, the history of the album and, and what made Dylan tick at that time, just because at that moment there had been books and books about uh, uh, this particular part of uh, scholarship, you know. And so as I went along, I started finding that I had read many of the books. And as I delved deeper and deeper into the music, I started to find my own personal story within that. So I, I was then able to start drawing on experiences in music that I enjoyed. And I was able to then create music that reflected both of those things. So I, I like to think of it nowadays. I write songs like Lost Records. So I try to think of a lost record and what would said artist, I don't know who it would be, is I write down the words and then I mix it up a little bit more and write a new song, which is songwriting at the end of the day. You know, I take the almost a Woody Guthrie approach in that uh, in that way, too. It's funny. I thought about this the other day. One of my favorite things is when I mishear someone's lyric and I think they said something. Yeah. And um, I, remember, I remember a late night with John Bryan and Evan Dando where we were talking about Ben Queller, the songwriter Ben Queller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and he had a lyric, um, and the kids who kid themselves was his lyric in the song. But the all three of us, Evan and John and I, kept thinking it was the kids who kill themselves. But that's the kind of thing where every time I hear some lyric like that, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe they said that. Oh, they didn't say that? Well, maybe I should say that. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so 15 years now, you so you really started doing this full time when you were 22. Mm -hmm. Was there... 
were there years before that where you knew that this was going to be your life? Was there like an epiphany moment when you were a kid where you knew I'm going to make music my life? Do you oh, remember this? Oh, yeah. I remember the first time that happened. I, I had played drums in the school, so I was interested in music in general. But the first time I went to a folk festival out in Encanto Park oh, when I was a kid, this was a, a local folk festival that was around the corner from my house. My mom saw a report on television that they were having a folk festival. At that time, I uh, just started watching the, uh, the History of Rock and Roll documentary. And so I picked up a guitar because I had seen Chuck Berry, Muddy, uh, you know, everything from the Beatles to Bob Dylan and up into all the way the 70s and heavy, heavy metal and stuff. So I, I was just drawn to the guitar. So I was starting to learn to play. And when I went down to the festival, I found a lot of people that were interested in the music and they were willing to share that music with me. And they also wanted to hear what I had to say as well. Now, and this was a group of people that were much older than me, that everybody was, uh, again, at that time I was, uh, must have been 17 or 18 years old when I first started going down. But these people that I was talking to were maybe in their 40s and 50s. Many were retirees that had played maybe semi-professionally or they began playing once they had retired. So I was one of the only young people that had come to this festival and was one of the only young people that was continuously uh, performing. So I was encouraged by a community of musicians that um, had a, I guess, a, an open and a broad sense of what music could be. So I was I was in a community that got me started. And then I did my own independent research outside of that. So I had my own uh, ideas of what I was looking for, looking for records and songs and whatnot. And, and then when I went to the Black Banjo Gathering in North Carolina, that was the first time I, I started to think about African-American string band music as a conceptual idea. And when I saw that I could open up a section of the history that included blues and jazz, country music, old-time music, and bluegrass within the scope of string band music and African-American string band music. That was a righteous deed to me. So I then moved, I sold everything I owned, moved from Arizona to North Carolina, and that's how I began my professional career. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> but it's I had, funny. I had seven or eight years of gigging, though, because I saw that when people loved the string band music, they saw that there was a power to it. And having gigged already individually, I saw that these that people were so enthusiastic about this power of the music and the sound. I was I I had to follow that and see what it meant, and it it allowed me to uh, also uh, go to um, uh, work with Music Maker Relief Foundation, which got me in touch with people like John D. Holman and Aljamae Hinton, and some of the tradition bears that were still living in North Carolina playing the Piedmont style. So I had a period where I was learning from a lot of people. That's why I didn't write songs for a long time. I just felt like I hadn't, I had written songs before. I'd written a lot of songs before I left uh, Arizona and uh, just in my own style, whatever it would be, you know? And, and uh, then once I went to North Carolina, I realized I should just learn. And I just spent all of my time learning styles. So when I now write songs, I just, like I said, I, I click into something that I've, I like, and then I adjust it a little bit, and then I figure out how to make a new song out of it, you know, which is always makes it fun, you know. <laughs> well, I love that because the the like the musicology that you the the study that you do, it isn't like this dry kind of driven by some, you know, I don't know, need for erudition or whatever. Like you you feel something in a, a piece of music, and then you just chase that down a a trail for a while. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, it, before I left uh, Arizona, I was also deep within slam poetry, and I did performance poetry for a while. So there was a period of time where I learned to put my instrument down, and I learned to perform without an instrument in front of me, and I learned how to use my words and my body and my actions to convey my message, which was very different, because as a musician, a lot of times your guitar is like your your armor, you know? And I had to learn to change my style of performing to fit that, and after I started doing performance poetry, I also got deep into silent films and early 1920s uh, iconography and ephemera. And that allowed me to also start looking at 1920s music in, within a lens of performance art that, uh, you know, I, I then created a, a uh, I don't know, an, a, a, an image and a persona that was a combination of myself because um, I... I am a firm believer of what Mance Lipscomb always preached, which is that I am just as much of the person I am on stage as I am off stage, but a combination of also iconography to give people the flavor of um, old timey music. And, and I started out as a busker as well. So I also know that music needs to be interesting, no matter how academically important it is. I am also trying to create entertaining music so that people are drawn to that so that they want to read the liner notes so that they can learn the history, you know, and it, it's a, it's a very subtle uh, process to try to figure out the way to make it appealing to the audience, but also make it appealing to me. Cause as you know, Rhett, you know, when you write a song, you got to write when you know, you're going to be able to perform a thousand, 10,000 times. So it's, it's also trying to create songs that are engaging for me to perform every night too, you know? God, I love that you touch on the idea of sort of the obligation to entertain, because uh, the thing that drives me most crazy is when I walk in and I see someone on stage and they're sort of just overflowing with this sort of entitlement, like everybody needs to shut up and listen to me read this page out of my diary because I'm, it's so important. But no, right? Like what you're saying is so beautiful. Like people, they could just keep walking. They could not come to the show. They are choosing to give us their time. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I learned from busking, you know, because, of course, there is a certain power that an artist should take on the stage. But, of course, it's a give and take, you know. Uh, and and when I was busking, I learned all of a sudden that nobody had to stop. Nobody had to listen. <laughs> nobody had to know what the song might be. And even at times when you're busking, you have to find out ways to entice somebody beyond just the music you're playing. And And this is nothing to do with skill level or genre or anything like that. But people are like that. People are, are enticed by an idea so that they might see in the distance and they might go to that corner and listen. And if they're intrigued by it, they might go into their pocket and give their money to that person, drop it into their hat. And that is its own sort of gratification because that means that the art you created enticed them to come in. But again, the stage it's is tough because of course you want a certain respect when you get on the stage. Um, and also, you know, when I mentioned this, I don't, it's not a matter of, it, it would never be a matter of pandering to the audience 100%. Cause I also learned how uh, to play to an audience that, and, and uh, whip up an audience that doesn't care. So when I first started out busking and also playing in some of the bars and flagstaff, the audiences were very tough. They didn't, they like the music, and Nashville is like this, too. The audiences like the music, but you really have to give them something to get them out of their seats to, or to pick their head up from their drink or their conversation or whatever. And that's, 
that is another challenge. And again, with traditional music, you're playing music that's 100 years old. So you have to you have kind of two obstacles to jump over a time barrier and then jump over an aesthetic barrier to you can even get your audience to to take the time. And that's that's to me is part of the challenge as well, which, again, fuels me to keep researching. Well, it's funny. So the, the these obstacles that, that you talk about, they're they're sort of more obvious, you know, the the the. Uh, a jaded Nashvilleian who's wants you know to pay more attention to their drink, or just you know, or going all in and moving everything to North Carolina and you know throwing away your safety nets. Like these, to me, they're like I find it. I find these really interesting. Obviously, these are like logistical, like life, uh, big life questions. But I wonder about like the interior obstacles that that artists are you know famously battling all the time. Do you? Do you ever grapple with, I don't know, the stuff that makes it hard to get up on a stage, the stuff that makes it hard to write a song? Do you have sort of these, the anxiety or the interior obstacles, self-generated obstacles that you deal with, and how do you deal with those? Well, yeah, one of the hardest ones for me is since I've created an act that's based off of history and is based off of facts, it it is at times very challenging to find the proper material because of course there are hundreds of old-timey songs but and again this year it has it is people are reanalyzing this stuff there are a lot of songs that have subconscious messages that you know you have to be very conscious of what you're doing because a song can mean something now that uh, 50 years before or 50 years after could mean something different and you don't want to be liable for old-timey material that you might not have researched out. And I, I make sure I research out all of my songs so that the things I'm saying are, if I'm not 100% factual, I may uh, spin a yarn here and there, but I'm making sure that I'm at least giving you most all facts when it comes to the history, or at least I'm trying not to embellish the history in some way that would be off-putting or would be uh, um, uh, misinformed in any type of way or would misinform the audience to think something as well. And that's a fine line because, of course, I, I, I want to entertain first. But I also because this was a big thing that I've spent a lot of time developing is trying not to be too dry on the academic part. So <laughs> my speaking parts are I try to be concise with the speaking parts. I try to make sure things are poignant. And I try not to digress too much when I can help it, because sometimes, you know, as a musician, even outside of academics, you know, even just if you if you mess up after a song, sometimes we all get a tick to be like, oh, boy, I messed that one up. And the audience doesn't mind. But you got to teach yourself how to do that sort of stagecraft. And that's when it comes to academic stuff. That's what I deal with. But that's that is a bit that's a lot of my time when gearing up for a show is spent on trying to figure out how can I present all of my facts, and then I have multiple instruments. So a big thing is trying to convey everything, be respectful of everything. So it, it can be quite meticulous in that way. Um, another thing, uh, boy, the search can always hurt because there's you never learn it all, and that can be consuming in of itself. Uh, there, are, there are books. I have, I have shelves and shelves of books that I want to read on different subjects, and I'll never get a chance, but I can't let it consume me. And that's the sort of stuff that can consume an artist is if they know they can't do everything they want to do. And it's consumed many artists like um, 
Uh, for me, I before I became a professional, which is one of the reasons I, I mentioned 2005 as being a big turning point for me, is before that point, I read a lot of musicians' biographies, and I would study what they did, and especially a lot of the musicians that have had major obstacles. I've tried to at least avoid or steer clear of some of the obvious ones, but, uh, you know, life happens, and... Uh, you just got to let life do it. It's done. I, I, I hope I've done all right in my journey thus far. But, um, you know, you just try to prepare for those things. I, you know, I, I've tried to not get caught up in too much of the normal vices. So I've let my I've turned my vices into my music, music obsession. And that's that ends up being healthy for me in the end. <laughs> <laughs> the search. Well, yeah, as long as you don't let the search eat you up. I love that. Well, I think that's such useful advice, too, for like if there's young artists out there, maybe maybe in any field, like if you make a mistake, it's so easy to get caught up in that and, and just stuck in a loop thinking about it, beating yourself up over it. But not only do you have to figure out how to move on from it, but you have to whatever, learn from it and learn how to let the audience move on from it. Or like I find my audience even enjoys it when I mess up. It makes oh, them feel yeah. like it's part of something. Well, absolutely. Well, that's a beautiful thing that, and again, this has been an interesting transition with the music industry because, uh, you know, you and I are both artists that, that began a professional career before everything was documented online constantly. I was talking with a friend of mine about it from years ago, and we both laughed about how we're so glad that there are dozens of tapes that only he and I might have of our early jams that we're like, <laughs> we're glad nobody is, is ever going to digitize these and get it on the internet. But new artists have that, that's a that is an obstacle for new artists is is how do you how do you have a full development of your entire artistic endeavor without feeling like you have to be scrutinized at every moment? And again, I can understand why any young artist would never want to make a mistake because it's um it, it's just uh we you know digital makes it very easy to say it all has to be perfect right when you do it, which again can also be um. I don't know. I feel like that can be the nail in the coffin for an artist because a single, just like a recording is a single moment, a single video is also a single moment. And at times videos can be deceiving where you can capture one moment so well, but to repeat that moment over and over again can be very difficult. And a digital kind of is deceiving in that way. But, you know, like with before that was the standard of the day, it was so much easier to like to go out there. You could do a gig, play great, or there could be a gig where you didn't do great, but you knew no one was ever going to bring it up again because it was it was just a once in a lifetime moment. Like you're saying, if 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 your fans know a song of yours and then you don't hit a lick or you mess up a lyric or you or you chuckle because of a verse, they're with you on it because they know you. Uh, digital is funny in that way that it's it's it, it it almost encourages you not to have that spontaneity sometimes because of uh you know the internet is everywhere <laughs> in its own type of way you know like uh you know nowadays if someone happened to film that bad gig and some new fan happens to say hey i, I heard about dom flemons and it, it happens to be that bad gig you know that's like that i i can't control that but at the same time it's uh it can be it can be kind of funky with that, but again, I'm always I'm always a fan of any time that you don't just mess up and and, and don't finish the song. Uh, that's that's righteous if the crowd's with you on it. You know, you got you can't you got to live your life. You can't you know. There's no 100 yeah. percent perfect music every night. You know, you just it's just impossible. You know. 
Well, and perfection is like the enemy of, of soul, right? Of like real feeling. Yeah. Ah, boy, that's what drives me crazy about computer recording. And I believe me, I use it I, and I love it. And I'm grateful for it. But it just it has a tendency to try and make us ch- like you say, the search, the search for the perfect take or whatever. Ugh. Yeah. yeah and, and and it's beautiful that they, that it's helping us be able to create. Uh, better recordings than than people could make before, but yeah, at the same time, it, it it also it leans into that one little notion to be so nitpicky about music. Which again, once you get to recording it, it's so easy to to nitpick every detail on some anything, whatever it might be. But yeah, I'm always struggling with that, trying to figure out uh, even when I'm writing songs how to catch that moment between fresh new song and song that I've done in the show a whole bunch and trying to find how to find somewhere between those two places to get it onto the album, to get it into the studio so that it, it, it sounds like I, I just made it made the song, you know, 10 minutes ago, even though I may have written it years ago, finding that spontaneity while still having the, uh, the, the poise and reserve of replayability, you know? Yeah. Well, one thing I admire about you is, you know, the uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. I feel like you you have such a level of self-awareness. I think it's really cool. And so I wonder if you were to meet a version of yourself, like a 21-year-old Dom Plemons who is working in today's world, what advice you would give yourself? Ooh, if I was meeting a, a young a version of myself, I'd, I'd say, as always, keep reading and keep playing and always take it easy when you can. You know, that the ultimate thing is, I would say it, it's OK to take a day off if you feel like you have to take one. And that's something I've only learned recently that um, even thankfully before the lockdown, because that's also helped me get through the lockdown as I taught myself like, OK, I'm going to give myself two weeks. And instead of cutting my two weeks into two days of day off, learning to really almost take my vacations like a job in terms of how uh, resilient I stay to not getting too busy. And um, that's something that I would recommend to anyone, especially younger people too, because it's, it's so easy to feel like you've got all this energy, all these ideas and that you want to get them all done in a 24 hour period and, you know, fight for that, do it, keep fighting to go as far as you can. But at the same time, it's always, you should give yourself some days off. You'll find that, Later on, you'll be glad you did so because <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that this is your advice because so often I encounter people who their advice is sort of the opposite. Like you got to work. Don't be so lazy. Don't lay around the house. But no, not you. I love that about you, Dom. You're a driven man. And I think it's sweet that now you're a father of a, like a two-year-old girl, right? Yep. Yep. Oh, that, that, yeah. That's got to be good. That probably forces you to just stop down every once in a while and lay on the ground and look at these tiny little face oh yeah it's, it's been a beautiful it's been a beautiful thing it's been a, a, actually a, a very different process uh, in terms of uh well you know your creative work is just it's it's all within your own mind and when you start having to think of someone else's mind of course you have your your partner and uh, my wife of course has her own mind about her that we have to have our own compromises <laughs> with the two of us but once you have this little baby it's amazing that you have to teach the, this child everything where, um, you know, before you learn from your folks or your mentors and you and you just kind of went on your own way. So that's been good. It's also again, it's taught me to also really enjoy those days off because 
then I realized that those days off are even shorter now with a little one ready to play and ready to, you know, see daddy and, and make sure that, you know, I, I get her whatever she needs from, from juice to the toys, to the movies or whatever she's, she's trying to get, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you said something early on in our conversation um, about the fellowship of musicians and the, the feeling of community that you found the first time you went to that folk festival. And, um, and it just really reminded me of the earliest days of making music and what drew me into the life as well, which is that, which is how this is such an environment of like kindness and support. And um, talking to you today is it's, I got to say, I love talking to you. And in, in a way it's made me miss so much just getting to see my friends, my fellow musicians. And I just, I can't wait until we can come back together again and Maybe we can do a gig together, at least just hang out somewhere and, and shoot the shit. Maybe I'll convince you to play me some more songs. That'd be wonderful. Right? You know, it's funny that the the big moment that we got to connect over at the, uh, the We Walk the Line. Now, this is for the folks who, you know, may have seen the program. So we, we walked the line. And this was also a moment where I was trying to re- rediscover myself in that first moment of musical community. Because I was convinced, because one of the big things uh, in my folk music uh, circle was we did round robining and there wasn't a lot of jamming but because everybody's so styles were so different we it really encouraged round robin so everybody would listen to each other and everybody play their new songs and so i was searching for that again so if you remember i had my guitar and i carried this thing for four or five hours after the program because i wanted to get to the <laughs> sit down circle because it was you and i shooter jennings um, uh, Amy Lee Nelson was there. Yeah. Also, um, uh, Jamie Johnson was with us for a little bit as well. And we were all just kind of roaming around, uh, uh um, Austin and just uh, taking in the, the city. And then, but I kept the guitar because I knew that with all these wonderful musicians, we'd finally get around. And I sang a song which I had not finished writing yet at that point. The song Too Long I've Been Gone, which is on uh, Prospect Hill. I had written two verses, but I wasn't sure what my third verse was going to be. And you all were so encouraging that I had to finish this song that after we finished uh, all sitting around together at the hotel, I wouldn't. I wrote that third verse uh, yes. and then there and finished the song. And, it, and it's the centerpiece of Prospect Hill. So it was uh, all from uh, your encouragement, Red, and everybody that was there that night. You know? Oh, that makes me so happy. Well. Yeah. I just, I think the world of you, Dom, and I'm so glad I got to talk to you. Thanks for being my guest on Wheels Off. Thanks so much for having me again, Red. Hopefully we'll see you soon, all right? I really hope so. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also... As the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.
pay you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.